Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What makes a diplomat great? How do we measure someone's diplomatic talents, especially if they acted hundreds of years ago? The process is never easy, and our criteria for selecting certain exceptional individuals for our Patreon-named tiers is far from scientific. But here at When Diplomacy Fails, we do value certain traits and characteristics above all. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands, And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Just look at how much of a fan we are of Bismarck and you'll see what I mean. Bismarck has certain traits and certain skills that really warrant him a place in the pantheon of when diplomacy fails. But I would argue there's lots of other people who have their own talents and skills, and but even if they don't deserve the crowning place at the top of the pantheon, they do deserve a seat within it. And in this episode, I will argue that Queen Elizabeth I of England is one of those such deserving persons. If you somehow weren't aware... When Diplomacy Fells is on Patreon, and for a certain amount every month, you guys could support this podcast and access a load of great goodies. The named Patreon tiers are there for history friends that want to take their support to the next level, by spending a little more and in the process choosing a named tier which best suits them. Maybe you've fancied yourself a destroyer of armadas, maybe you do in fact have red hair and wear very, very poofy dresses, in which case... Elizabeth I's Patreon tier may well be for you. In return, you'll get my eternal thanks, of course, as well as a personalised mug representing the namesake of that tier, emblazoned all over it. In this case, we have Queen Elizabeth I, and to illustrate why I feel she deserves her own tier, I brought you a little-known story about the Portuguese pretender, a man called Don Antonio, and how Elizabeth planned to use this bargaining chip to gain what she wanted in international relations either through diplomacy, fear-mongering, or war. In a hostile world where she was by no means the strongest power, Liz would have to be careful, perceptive, and consistently well-informed if she was to gain something from the situation. You see, Queen Elizabeth I's career is not all about the Armada. You see, she was far more diplomatically capable than history generally gives her credit for, and this episode here of When Diplomacy Fails thinks is my attempt to, well, book that trend. If this all sounds good to you, if you guys feel like you're in the mood to take a trip into the 1580s, and if you feel like you want to break from the long war and maybe you want to hear what the fuss is all about with Elizabeth I, 
then I'd like to say welcome to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails Thinks. We believe that peace is at hand. Dem Führer in der Erkämpfung des Sieges, durch dick und dünn und unter Aufnahme auf der schwersten persönlichen Belastungen zu folgen. I don't need to tell you, of all people, that the United Nations has a special stake and special responsibility in promoting respect for human rights. Well, Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was our finest hour. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. But the manner of death seemed unimportant. Murder had been done at Fugenwald. God alone knows how many men and boys have died there during the last 12 years. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Territorial questions and arguments of power, obsolete through they are, still prevail over the essential demands of common welfare and justice. The North Atlantic Treaty was born out of fear and frustration. Fear of the aggressive and subversive policies of communism and the effect of those policies on our security and well-being. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. In 1580, King Philip II of Spain united his Spanish realm with that of Portugal, creating the Iberian Union in the process and massively inflating his power, prestige and wealth as he did so. Now with a stable base at home, Philip could focus his attentions on foreign policy. The English under their bastard Queen Elizabeth were certainly irksome and on another point, dangerously heretical, but such concerns were less immediate than the revolt against his actual kingly authority in the Netherlands. The tiresome and ungrateful Dutch, having persuaded themselves of the righteousness of their cause and the necessity of their independence, represented an utterly unacceptable affront to the majesty and prestige of the House of Habsburg, and they had to be extinguished. In addition to this, France remained weak and divided by constant religious warfare, a mark surely of that monarchy's lack of sovereign will and the degradation of the Valois house. Now that we're out of Philip II's mind, consider the fact that Spain was powered by silver from its unchallenged monopoly over South and Central America. Philip seemed on course to dominate the world just as his father Charles V had done when he had claimed the titles of Holy Roman Emperor in addition to King of Spain. Yet if one looked deep enough, cracks could already be seen in the perfect royal edifice that Philip had helped to create. These cracks were, contrary to Philip II's impressions, both easily exploitable and 
dangerously close to home. The Portuguese, far from utterly cowed under his authority, retained a rebellious faction that dreamt of again exercising their independence, and they aimed to achieve this through the solicitation of foreign aid, which would bring their pretender, Dom Antonio, the prior of Cato, an illegitimate descendant of the apparently extinct Portuguese royal line, to the Portuguese throne. Nowhere did Portugal's quest for foreign aid seem to bear as much fruit than in England's most active diplomatic monarch in living memory, Elizabeth I. As active English monarchs go, Elizabeth is certainly up there with the most prolific. Since she has been and continues to be so deeply studied, not to mention admired, it is remarkable that the aspect of her reign which continues to surprise is that of her dalliances and great investments in the realm of foreign policy. During the course of her reign, Elizabeth lived through some of the most profoundly important events in modern European history, everything from the revolt of the Netherlands, to the significant reign of Philip II, to the furthering of the French Wars of Religion, to the opening of the New World, to the English conquest and subsequent plantations in Northern Ireland, which endure to this day and form an intrinsic part of Irish affairs. Just look at what people are talking about these days with Brexit and the Irish border and everything else and you'll see what I mean. But we're not here to dwell on that, mercifully. You see, even though Elizabeth had several projects ongoing, from the establishment of the East India Company in 1601, to the sponsoring of lucrative piratical raids on European shipping, she was also utterly pragmatic, ruthless and tenacious when it came to waging an actual war, which her realm was faced with when the Anglo-Spanish War erupted into the open in 1585. Elizabeth had demonstrated in the years before that she was willing to wage a proxy war against the Spanish, in spite of Philip's unquestionable superiority to England in power and wealth. Rather than engage Spain directly before the outbreak of war, Elizabeth chose instead to chip away at Spanish power wherever she could. The occasional raid by a pirate, maybe or maybe not sponsored by the English crown, the suspiciously English mercenaries and the monies pouring into the Netherlands, and, where this episode of When Diplomacy Fails Thinks is concerned, the curious incident of the Portuguese pretender Don Antonio, and the possibility he represented to fatally undermine Philip's authority in Iberia by placing another king on the throne of Portugal. This episode will examine the diplomatic and sometimes military campaign launched by Elizabeth in the interests of this Portuguese pretender, and its contents were inspired mainly by the fact that such efforts are rarely mentioned in the historiography of the era, except insofar as they failed in the English Armada of 1589, when a kind of counter-attack to the more infamous Spanish Armada of the previous year was launched in an effort to place Don Antonio on the Portuguese throne. I've always been interested in Queen Elizabeth. She plainly faced down the most supremely powerful monarch of the era, but she never ceased conjuring up new ways to make Philip steam with rage as she continued to appear within the courts and battlefields of Europe, to challenge him in the most daring and fascinating ways. The Portuguese story is just one element of this tenacious policy, but it is a worthy one to examine for what it tells us about Elizabeth's diplomatic finesse, so let's properly get into it. In May 1580, Juan Rodriguez de Souza, Don Antonio's agent in England, was instructed to offer the English a castle on the West African coast as security for extensive military support and for the specific purpose of securing the Portuguese Azores against Philip. 
Upping the stakes further, D'Souza offered Elizabeth commercial concessions and favourable status with Portugal in the event that Antonio's regime could be actually secured. Getting wind of the fact that Elizabeth may well be tempted to go along with these lucrative offers, or that she may be tempted to see simply how far she could push Philip II, the Spanish ambassador in London, Don Bernardino de Mendoza, urged Elizabeth to see reason in this affair of Philip's and, as he put it, not to offend a king who has so strong an army and so long a sword. Elizabeth didn't need to be told twice, although we know her as the proud and defiant English queen in the face of Spanish might, the historical record testifies to the fact that Elizabeth was terrified of the idea of challenging Spain militarily on the world stage. This very understandable reluctance to confront Philip meant that, for the early 1580s at least, England would do its best to tread a neutral course. Yet, while Elizabeth knew full well that she had no intentions of waging war on Philip in Don Antonio's name, it would have been foolish to dismiss the Portuguese pretender outright, thus losing the opportunity to make Philip's life that much more difficult, and perhaps make Elizabeth's life that much easier. If Elizabeth could keep Don Antonio guessing, it meant that she would have more diplomatic options open to her, and it also opened the door to Spanish concessions, in other words, the concessions that Philip II would offer to Elizabeth in return for her pledge to not support Don Antonio. Furthermore, Elizabeth hoped that by keeping the question open, the French might be encouraged also to agitate against the common enemy. In a world dominated by Spanish power, Elizabeth proved highly reluctant to do anything without the promise of French aid, or without France actually initiating hostilities first. Of course, the French wars of religion kept the old enemy constantly at a disadvantage, and until the French monarchy itself stabilised, there was no true opportunity for Elizabeth to take advantage herself of a possible Anglo-French partnership. Elizabeth also had to consider her own subjects, specifically the war party within her council, who were convinced of the net benefit in taking the trade and piracy against the Spanish out into the open for greater gain. The likes of Francis Drake demonstrated what could be gleaned from piracy and precisely how lucrative its practice could be for the daring sailor. So to keep these subjects and supporters of the crown satisfied, she would have to appear willing to act even if concrete action was the last thing she desired to take. Going back on her earlier refusals to grant Don Antonio aid then, Elizabeth agreed with D'Souza, at least in principle, to send an expedition to relieve Don Antonio's loyal islanders in the Azores. Ever the keen negotiator though, Elizabeth first stipulated three conditions that must first be met. One, that she receive more specific information about what was needed exactly. Two, that members of the Privy Council confer with D'Souza for a better understanding of the pretender's objectives. And three, that the King of France agree to join any such expedition a virtually impossible condition as we know, considering the state of France. Elizabeth's demands here make it clear then, that rather than shutting the door, she was content to lead Don Antonio on, so long as she could blame the French for the delay. Yet, if she was content to blame the French, she was also content to make public moves to advance the apparent progress of an Anglo-French alliance in the pretender's mind. In June 1581, John Summers was sent to France to aid the resident ambassador, Sir Henry Cobham. The two men had instructions to press King Henry III of France for a joint Anglo-French campaign to reduce Philip's increased strength, 
mostly through the process of aiding King Henry's brother, the Duke of Anjou, in the Low Countries, and, critically, Don Antonio in Portugal. Perhaps the most revealing part of the English negotiator's instructions was the caveat that, since many Englishmen had goods in Spain that might be seized, it would be better for France to make open war on Spain than for England to do so. How convenient. Once again, Elizabeth shied away from making the proxy war official, although she did offer to underwrite one-fourth of the cost. Elizabeth was fully clued into the French internal weakness and the divisions of her religious and court factions, notwithstanding the force of the Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici, who attended to hold it all together. As if to give further indication of her commitment to the pretender's cause, she had a fleet assembled and kitted out to be led by Drake whenever it was fully prepared. Don Antonio arrived in England at the end of July 1581, as it was no longer safe for him in Portugal, and he requested more ships, which delayed the process. Before it could sail, Elizabeth claimed, they were waiting for word on the French commitment. Only then, with a guaranteed ally, would the English sail to the Azores in the pretender's name. As the French refused to totally commit until Elizabeth herself consented to the marriage proposal to Henry's brother, the Duke of Anjou, and Elizabeth refused to be married to that pock-marked soldier, the negotiations with the French were destined to stall. In keeping with Elizabeth's diplomatic traditions, England allowed them to stall, but prevented them from failing altogether, injecting little gestures of goodwill and promises to the French when it seemed necessary to shore up the pretender's confidence. After all, the more likely an Anglo-French alliance was, the more likely Don Antonio would be to stick around. For example, in July, another mission was sent to Paris to arrange closer Anglo-French cooperation, and to agree to mount joint operations against Spain in spite of the danger it would pose to English security. The Englishman at the head of the mission, a member of the war party named Walsingham, noted that, from such negotiations, a war upon either both or one of us would result. But he was instructed to say that, we think it good for the King of Spain to be impeached both in Portugal and in his islands, as well as in the Low Countries. In these places, Walsingham said, we shall be ready to give such indirect assistance as shall not at once be a cause of war. In other words, in so many words, Walsingham said that we wanted France to do the heavy lifting, but we'll do everything we can in the background to hamper the Spanish response, as long as Philip doesn't mind enough to make war on us as well. In the words of the historian Gordon K. McBride, in his article on this very topic, Elizabethan Foreign Policy in Microcosm, the Portuguese Pretender, 1580-1589, McBride noted that Elizabeth was nothing if not blatantly contradictory for the sake of the national interest. He wrote, Thus, regardless of what she may have said to the contrary, despite any investment she or her subjects may have made in preparing the voyage, and ignoring the promptings from Don Antonio and the warlike members of her council, Elizabeth could not bring herself to authorise an act which might lead directly to war with the King of Spain, nor would she ever countenance such a needless gamble. Instead, she waited, slyly tested the intentions of her enemy, and used France as an excuse to Don Antonio and the other interested parties to avoid having to take any irrevocable action until the last moment. For his part, Mendoza, the Spanish ambassador in London, really was beginning to tire of Elizabeth's stance. The problem with trying to please everyone at once, it seemed, 
was that Elizabeth was frustrating those that could really do her harm. With the pretender welcomed back in England despite his threats, he wrote home to his master, urging Philip himself to make it plain to the English queen how greatly she had offended him. Such an act on Philip's part was necessary because, according to Mendoza up to this point, she, Elizabeth, has not imagined that your majesty would resent anything she thinks fit to do on her bare assurance that she knows nothing of the matter. When Elizabeth contended that Philip has more need of England than of anyone else, Mendoza had enough, and following another urging on the 13th of August, 1581, he received a letter in response from his king, a somewhat mild repose considering the circumstances. In this letter from the king of Spain, Philip II made it clear to Mendoza that Elizabeth was expected to surrender or at least expel Don Antonio from England, adding that, If you cannot get her to accede to my request, you may tell the queen that, if Don Antonio leaves her country for any of my dominions, or to injure any of my subjects, I shall understand it to be a declaration of war. This is so important that I need not urge it further upon you. In case Elizabeth didn't get the message, which Mendoza certainly would have passed on to her, Philip endeavoured to follow this warning up with another letter on the 23rd of August, saying, I beg, therefore, as I have done before, that you will take steps to have him handed over to me or at least expelled. If you refuse and like again to abuse our often injured patients, you are to know that for what place soever in our dominions he departs from your country with hostile minds towards us and our subjects, with whatever aids to war, on whatever pretext supplied, I shall understand to be war undeservedly declared upon me by you. If that happens, note will be taken that I have never lacked loyalty in preserving amity, and that when peace, so often shaken by you, has been quickly broken, I shall not lack force to meet the consequences. Elizabeth, for her part, seemed to have got the message. From mid-August 1581, even before Philip's second letter had been received, she abruptly dropped her support of Don Antonio. When the pretender requested an audience with the Queen, he was told that his ships had not been allowed to sail, nor would he be floated the £30,000 loan he had been promised, in case such acts were construed as those of war by Spain. At this, Don Antonio reportedly claimed that relying on the English had been punishment for his sins, as they had been so fickle. But fickle was not quite accurate to describe Elizabeth's stance, though she did vacillate in her confidence she remained obdurate on the point of avoiding war with the most powerful entity in the Western world. This was understandable, even if it doesn't quite gel with the picture we've been given of the Queen. Don Antonio wasn't about to stick around and wait for Elizabeth's legend to develop, so he left for the promises of France in autumn 1581, where Catherine de' Medici, ever eager to undermine the Spanish, was determined to emphasise his importance as a threat to Philip's legitimacy in Portugal. In July 1583, Don Antonio sallied forth in a campaign against the Azores, but by that point, Philip's regime was thoroughly entrenched there, and Antonio barely managed to escape. By autumn 1583, the pretender's plight was desperate. He spent his own personal savings and pawned off the Portuguese crown jewels in an effort to get allies for his quest, yet all to no avail. If 1584 showed no signs of improvement, then there seemed little hope of ever regaining his rightful inheritance. 
On the 30th of January 1584, Sir Edward Stafford, the new English ambassador in France, sent three requests to Elizabeth from Don Antonio, who apparently wished to try his English hand once more. He desired permission to go to England ASAP, asked that he be provided with a residence in or near one of the English port towns, and requested a pension of 100 crowns per month, for meat and drink for him and his, in his own words. In a draft of his reply to Stafford, War Party member Walsingham wrote that the Queen is content for him to repair into this realm at his pleasure, and he shall be used with all courtesy. However, understanding that Philip may attempt a coastal landing to nab the pretender, Elizabeth refused, for his own safety and her security, to have him lodged in a port town. For, as she put it, in such places attempts might be made upon the sudden to the prejudice of both his person and her estate. Regarding the pension, Stafford was instructed to make no mention of it at all, but say that the Queen would consider it when she heard Don Antonio's response to her proposals. Antonio was pleased by Elizabeth's response, but pressed on the issue of the pension since he couldn't leave Catherine de' Medici's own financial graces, meagre though they were, without some guarantee that he wouldn't be penniless when he arrived. On this, Elizabeth remained silent, largely because in the grand scheme of things, Don Antonio remained more of a threat to England than to Spain, at least until this state of affairs changed then, the Queen saw no need to fork out funds to put her own regime at Philip's displeasure. It was thus to Don Antonio's great fortune that affairs rapidly deteriorated between the English and the Spanish. Mendoza, the Spanish ambassador, was ejected from London after his schemes repeatedly brought the displeasure of the war party, who pressed Elizabeth to remove him. This pressure was greatly aided by the essential loss of France as a counterweight to Spain. As the Eighth War of Religion in France began, just as the Duke of Anjou died in June 1584, and Antwerp fell to Spain shortly after. With no military opposition coming from France, as another war of religion there loomed, Elizabeth perhaps felt compelled to listen to the warlike advice of her court and accede to their suggestions, beginning with an alliance binding England and the Union of Utrecht, precursor of the Dutch Republic, together. In addition, having not yet left the continent and benefiting now more from Dutch hospitality, the Portuguese pretender Don Antonio had managed to encourage an uptick in his own fortunes by collaborating with these same Dutch in the all-important business of the era, piracy. To cut a long story short about how Antonio made some hard cash, he instructed the Dutch not to raid any Portuguese vessels if they flew a standard in support of his struggle, with the result being that, before long, Antonio had a fleet of 12 ships loyal to him, containing experienced Portuguese merchants and sailors, while Philip II was receiving regular petitions from disadvantaged Portuguese sailors, urging him to do something about the menace that the pretender posed to them at sea. This little deal with the Dutch was a handy way of hitting the Portuguese, and thus Philip, precisely where it hurt. And as the war with England opened, he began to hear willing offers from Elizabeth once more. In the mind of the scheming English queen, it seemed as though the pretender's usefulness had not been exhausted just yet. For Don Antonio to have some effect in the important rhetorical circles of the day, he would have to have enough written materials behind him 
backing up his position, and above all backing up his oft-repeated claim that if he were ever to appear off the coast of Portugal with sufficient force, the Portuguese nation would join him proudly. For this purpose, the propaganda machine was put into overdrive as Don Antonio resided in the Netherlands. In 1585, the explanation of the true and lawful right and the title of his most excellent prince, Antony, the first of that name, King of Portugal, etc., was released in Latin and thereafter in English and French for an interested public. By that point, Antonio was actually sailing for London in anticipation of the warm reception he had been promised by Elizabeth's agents, where once he had been out in the cold, now the mere presence of Don Antonio in England represented a coup for its queen. In the grand strategy of the day, now that a war with Spain was plainly looming and about to break out thanks to the Dutch tensions, any way that Elizabeth could hit back at Philip II was immensely valuable. Incredibly, even while some in England wholeheartedly believed in Antonio's quest, others were more cynical about the possibilities of the Portuguese pretender backing his throne with such ease, especially as one of the claims in the above-mentioned pamphlet put it that, The said king, Don Antonio, who, with the aid of some reasonable navy of 10 or 12,000 men, furnished with victuals, munitions and other necessaries, may in short time, without any great difficulty, recover his kingdom. The likelihood of England supplying such resources as the 1580s progressed was an increasingly minute prospect, but the realities of the day and whether England or its queen believed in Antonio didn't really matter to Elizabeth as much as what the Spanish thought about the whole enterprise. Every time word was received of Sir Francis Drake, one of Antonio's biggest fans, heading off on some voyage, in Madrid it was feared that Drake carried the pretender on board. The strategic implications of Antonio's disruptive landing and the damage he could do to Philip's Iberian Union were estimated in Spain to be considerable and as they took any opportunities first to try and assassinate Antonio and then to try and reach a compromise with him, the threat that that once obscure pretender now posed to Philip's grand empire was made even more clear. Yet, although the prospects for Don Antonio looked rosier than perhaps they had in a good while, the problems for Don Antonio also came in waves as the 1580s further progressed, largely because Elizabeth was busy pulling in all her resources in an attempt to prepare herself for Philip's English adventure, otherwise known, of course, as the Armada. In the years and months leading up to 1588, Antonio became increasingly concerned that not only could Philip potentially succeed and thus leave Don Antonio in danger in an England occupied by Spain, but that Elizabeth may well try to soothe Philip by handing the Portuguese pretender over into Spanish custody. In addition, Antonio's presence was only favourable so long as England and Spain were at war. If Spain and England came to make peace, especially likely now that Philip had a gun to Elizabeth's head, then Antonio would again be viewed as an obstacle to peaceful Anglo-Spanish relations, and he would again be out on his ear. Whilst we know that the Armada came and went in 1588, the atmosphere of fear and the terror of the Spanish response and the time before that event seemed to grip Elizabeth's court. To offset the potential danger to her realm, she invested in another diplomatic option, this one with the Ottoman Empire. Only a decade before had Spanish arms triumphed against the Turks at Lepanto, 
and the Ottomans would certainly have valued the opportunity for revenge. If England and France would supply boats or arms, then it was understood that the Turks would be relied upon not only to launch an armada of their own against Spain in the Mediterranean, but also to land Antonio along the Portuguese coast as they did so. Through such an option, we see just how wide-ranging and useful Don Antonio was to Elizabeth. The Dutch were on board because of the piratical past he had with them, the French were willing, if any resources remained to support his efforts, the Ottomans had been contacted in his name, and Spain was always on edge so long as another heir to Portugal's throne was alive and kicking. Yet, just as Antonio had always feared, Elizabeth was able to both appreciate and use the pretender as an invaluable diplomatic chip, but also to sacrifice him if it proved necessary to prevent Spanish military operations from launching a concerted effort against England. In short, negotiations had reached a point in the spring of 1588 that it seemed certainly possible Elizabeth may abandon Antonio's cause and force him to live a penniless existence elsewhere if it meant she could avoid the Armada. It was written in the foreign papers at the time that And because it is likely that you shall be moved to accord by some special article that we shall not give aid to Don Antonio, ye may at the first answer that by general words in former treaties, such cases of giving aid to the king's enemies are provided for, as in truth they are. But yet, if by reason of our former aids, which they will allege have been manifestly given unto him, they will not be otherwise satisfied, then ye may well agree that we shall covenant not to give the said Don Antonio any aid of men, money or shipping, or to make war against the King of Spain. As it turned out, not even Don Antonio himself could stand the heat. He attempted to flee from England in March 1588, perhaps sensing that his cause had become a bargaining chip rather than a real mission for Elizabeth. Only a few months later, Elizabeth's fears were brought to life, and a Spanish naval force the likes of which had never before been seen, appeared in the channel. Of course, keeping her cool and relying on the home advantage, including the weather, the English famously beat back the Spanish and inflicted a major wound on Philip II's prestige and pride. Don Antonio, of course, was delighted, especially when he learned not only that the immediate military danger had passed, but that a counter-attack, including his landing back on the Portuguese coast, was planned for the following year. By so doing, Sir Francis Drake, the operation's commander, envisioned making Philip's nightmare a reality, after the Spanish king had seen fit to make Elizabeth sweat. Believing that Lisbon was the key to Spanish-occupied Portugal, Drake authorised a seizure of that critical port town, and he claimed that, with the landing of the pretender there, all of Portugal would then switch to Antonio, dividing the Iberian Union in the process. The result for Spain would be disaster, and the implications for Don Antonio suggested that finally, after close to a decade of waiting, he would now be returning home to the warm welcome he had always promised his supporters. However, it was not all roses. For Elizabeth's part, she was nervous about throwing a load of resources behind a scheme which may well not pan out. She seemed, among Antonio's English supporters, to have been the only figure that suspected that, perhaps, the pretender may not acquire the unanimous support that he seemed to expect. In addition, while Drake and Antonio wished to make a landing at Lisbon a priority, 
The most important aspect of the venture for Elizabeth was that the Spanish ships recovering from the Armada of the previous year be totally destroyed. Antonio was thus her third or fourth priority, with the seizure of more Spanish treasures taking a place of greater importance in her mind than the pretender's promises. Elizabeth's cynical perspectives on Don Antonio's prospects may have been in the minority of opinion among those that left for Spain in April 1589, but her judgments proved correct. Not only was the expedition racked with problems of illness, bad weather and lack of supplies from the outset, but the English landing force at Lisbon failed to make much of an impression. When Don Antonio landed on his homeland's sacred soil for the first time in years, he was crowned with depression at the site. Contrary to the myths he had peddled for the last decade, no Portuguese national awakening occurred, no great Portuguese army marched out to crown him king or throw off the Spanish yoke. Instead, it was clear that the Portuguese were thoroughly under the thumb of Philip II and that since he threatened their peaceful coexistence with their Spanish overlords, most wanted Don Antonio gone. Elizabeth, it transpired, had been right not to hope too much on the pretender's restoration and Portugal itself, far from rebellious, would not break from Spain for another 50 years. In the aftermath of this anticlimactic showing, Elizabeth's subjects had much to learn. Spain, far from beaten, was still far more powerful than London could ever claim to be by the late 16th century, and the struggle ahead was destined to be a long one. Far from launching further offensives then, Elizabeth determined to hunker down and prepare for the struggle which was to come, a struggle which was only concluded outside of her lifetime, when the Treaty of London was signed between England and Spain in 1604. By that time, the pretender had been long dead. In the aftermath of the depressing showing, he went to France to join the court of the new King of France, Henry IV. There, Don Antonio would stay for the remaining six years of his life, wondering, no doubt, what might have been. So what can we learn from Elizabeth, and why does her conduct justify her position as one of our tiers of support on Patreon? The thing to note about Elizabeth above all was her flexibility. Far from committing herself to a given course, Elizabeth was able to discern where the benefits for her realm lay in supporting the Portuguese pretender. She would not do so out of some rash or emotional policy decision. She would only provide Don Antonio with the resources he needed once she was confident in the venture overall. And even then, as we saw, she never invested her hopes in Antonio like some of her courtiers did. To the end, she remained hopeful but realistic, and always considered first her actual capabilities and the true realities of the power balance between England and Spain. Her flexibility and cynicism when dealing with the pretender over the 1580s mark Elizabeth as one of the most vivid diplomatic actors of the era. At the end of the day, while she never invested enough stock in Don Antonio to bankrupt her overall efforts against Spain, she always kept him at a reasonable distance, except perhaps for the few months that Don Antonio was sulking in France, and this was because, in Elizabeth's mind, Don Antonio represented something that she sorely lacked in the 1580s, a weapon which could be used to hurt Spain like no other weapon could. Such activities were complicated by her simultaneous and far more successful, it has to be said, policy of supporting the Dutch Republic against Madrid. Through a combination of such measures, she sought to take the greatest power in the world down a few pegs. 
had the weather been better, the venture better planned and fortunes more favourable, she may well have succeeded in placing the pretender on the Portuguese throne, but for Elizabeth I of England, it was enough to use Don Antonio to further her own interests. So what do we think? Do Queen Elizabeth I's diplomatic exploits in the story of the Portuguese pretender warrant her status as a high-up Patreon tier? Without a doubt, she is certainly representing the female diplomatists, and while she did not succeed in putting a new king on Portugal's throne, she remembered rule number 23 of diplomacy, never lose sight of the true goal. While she did compromise on Don Antonio in the end, she persevered with the far more important foreign policy goals instead, that of supporting the Dutch, even of contacting the Ottomans, and of preparing for the worst in a campaign against Spain. Making use of rule number 76 of diplomacy, she managed to keep King Philip II of Spain on his toes throughout the 1580s, as Madrid constantly looked for evidence of a Portuguese return. By bluffing and punching above her weight, Elizabeth was far more effective in her sponsoring of Don Antonio than either the end result or her own resources would have suggested. Whether her policy could be considered a success or not is debatable, but as rule number 42 of diplomacy states, yes, I am just making all these up in case you were wondering, Liz remembered that the most important thing in foreign policy was to make the most of what you had. Because she did that, Elizabeth and England survived the threats set against them, and they would expand throughout the coming decades all the while looking for new ways to snipe at the Spanish enemy. For these reasons, as well as many others, I feel that Queen Elizabeth I is worthy of her status in the When Diplomacy Fails pantheon of diplomatists, but I also believe that she is worthy of her Patreon tier. But what do you think? Make sure to let me know through the usual channels, and make sure, of course, to check out the When Diplomacy Fails Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or by clicking on the link in the description of this episode. Is it a bit cheeky that I used an episode to, like, advertise Patreon? I mean, yes and no. On the one hand, you guys have heard me say Patreon about 20 times in this episode, but on the other hand, you guys have gotten an original episode, researched by yours truly, and yeah, I really had a good time researching it. So, if you guys were interested too, and if you had a good time, do let me know what you thought. But as always... I have been Zach, you've been a wonderful history friend, or perhaps even a patron, and this has been When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks! Thanks again for listening, and I'll be seeing you all in the next episode of The Long War, soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.